Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators Podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians to building a cohesive brand to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it, talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight-inclusive business, the good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we're on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Angelie Praiser Tong, and she is the writer of Anti Racist Dietitian, which is a newsletter. And we'll talk more about that coming up. But I want to tell you a little bit about her before we get started. So, Angelie Praiser Tong is a writer and public health dietitian focused on food systems, racial equity, and nutrition. She led an innovative city funded corner store program in New Orleans that increased fresh food access in low income neighborhoods and worked with food entrepreneurs in the city looking to operationalize racial equity in their businesses. Now living in Denver, Colorado, she currently writes the reader-supported newsletter, Anti-Racist Dietitian, and works with local governments, nonprofit organizations, and professional groups as a speaker and consultant on issues related to food and equity. So obviously, you can tell she's very cool, and we're excited to talk with her today. Hi, Angelie. Hi, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So you're a dietitian, and you do different work outside of the one-on-one space. And I would love to just hold space for your journey in entrepreneurship because you have a cool backstory. So tell us where it's been and how it's going and where it's going. Sure. So I'm a career changer and uh, started, uh, I studied film as an undergraduate and then discovered sort of food, food writing and the culinary side of things um, after college and decided to go back to school because I was interested in community nutrition. Um, In the course of my studies, I uh, ended up moving to New Orleans kind of overnight (laughs) because of my husband's job. And that was really eye-opening because I am from Southern California. That's where I was going to school. And obviously the world of food and nutrition is so different in Southeast Louisiana from Southern California. Um, And in, in my time in New Orleans and going back to school to get my master's degree in public health nutrition, I just had my eyes open to the ways that racism and anti-Blackness really shape um, what we eat, our yeah. health systems, uh, and how we think about nutrition, and became really frustrated with the way that dietetics wasn't talking openly about that. So after completing my uh, dietetic internship, I specifically was looking to work with an organization that was addressing those issues. So I started working with a nonprofit called Propeller, and they work with mostly BIPOC entrepreneurs um, on operationalizing racial equity in their businesses. Um, So started working with their healthy corner store program, um, but then expanded to also working with their food entrepreneurs. And that was an amazing experience. Um, And so when I moved to Denver, I was kind of trying to figure out what my next step was. 
uh, had some missteps as far as just finding a job that wasn't a good fit and ended up realizing I wanted to go back to writing. I had been an editor for the um, food website, The Kitchen, for a long time while I was in school. Uh, and but really wanted to bring together all these different strands of my interests, my experiences, and what I thought it was most important that we be talking about in dietetics. And so uh, started anti-racist dietitian, um, and I'm doing also some freelance writing, consulting, and speaking, just also about the topics of food justice, um, nutrition, and yeah, just trying to spread the word in a world that doesn't necessarily openly talk about these things. Okay. You just like tied that up in such a nice bow of a million different things that you've done. And it doesn't surprise me at all because when you guys check out the anti-racist dietitian newsletter, you will see how beautifully um, Angeli writes and just says, has a way of saying things in a very concise way where you get a lot out of it. But could you tell us a little bit more about, well, what, let me take a step back because there's a, there's a lot here. Um, all of your work is really centered around racial equity. And I want to hear what you were noticing first, whenever you felt the shift from California to new Orleans, like what were big key points where your eyes were opened as you were going through the dietetics program and like playing with entrepreneurship? Sure. Um, well, one just huge shift was uh, New Orleans has, and not only just New Orleans, but the surrounding area. I was actually finishing my dietetics program sort of deep in the bayou, which is like Cajun culture. Um, so everyone there really has this long and deep shared food culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that environment, it's it became even more jarring to kind of tell everyone, oh, you should eat quinoa, you should eat kale, you know, why don't you try to healthify your gumbo um, in a way that just felt really insulting and and uh, just, it didn't make sense. It, it just wasn't the right fit. Mm. And, and there was like a joyfulness around food, like a shared joyfulness around food um, that I, I didn't feel like it was my right to disrupt, you know, just for supposed reasons of health. Um, so that was a huge shift, just a, a big culture shock. Um, and then and then obviously just being in New Orleans and being in the Deep South, the health disparities between Black people and white people are so obviously and closely tied to racism and kind of the legacy of slavery. And Mm. in public health, um, you know, they openly talk about that. Like they talk about the health effects on racism, the health effects of racism. Uh, And I think people are talking about that more openly out in the world, you know, when we think about like, Black maternal health and sort of those disparities, but definitely in dietetics, that just wasn't happening. Oh my gosh. There's such a cognitive dissonance in dietetics. And thank you for sharing that because it's a very, just the theme of entitlement of a predominantly white field dietetics coming into a space where there's different kinds of people and assuming and assuming their opinion and their way and their thought process is what's the most healthy is just such a entitled, weird, 
ignorant stance to be in. And when we think about um, public health and the social determinants of health and all the pieces that go into health, nutrition is such a small piece in the greater scheme of things. We know it's an important piece, but at the same time, yes, if somebody's facing um, racism and trauma and all of those things, we know there's a bigger impact on life expectancy, health conditions, and things like that. So why the fuck are we talking about quinoa? Exactly. Yeah. And, and just the really those social determinants of health you see play out all around you when you're living in New Orleans, as far as where do people live? Like what kinds of jobs do they have? Um, and just the really systemic forces that are trying to keep people um, kind of in a lower station in life, which then affects all aspects of their life and health. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I know it's so hard to to capture what all that looks like in one singular conversation, but definitely something for people to be thinking about and curious about. Um, in relation to having this lens through your work, I'm curious how that came into play with um, specifically working in like the consumer packaged goods space, the CPG. And if you could explain a little bit of what that means and the organization you were involved in and what was different about working with folks with this lens and prioritizing working with BIPOC folks? Yeah. So um, at Propeller, they run an accelerator program. It's free for um, entrepreneurs. And uh, the food program kind of was working with all sorts of different businesses, but then uh, took a shift towards consumer packaged goods. It was really like a passion of my boss, who um, is also an amazing dietitian who's so um, just focused and committed to racial equity. And and sh- what she saw, and I agreed, is that there is such a gap in the consumer packaged goods world. Um So, you know, thinking about like canned drinks or snack products, um, and it's especially difficult to face in New Orleans because a lot, there is such a huge food culture there. There are these pipelines for people who want to get into the food business, but it's really just focused on um, like food service. And that is such a precarious business. I, I mean, as we saw during the lockdown early days of COVID that can just all fall apart in kind of overnight. Mm. So um, CPG can offer a more sustainable way to, to have a business, a food related business. And also honestly, like a lot of sort of recipes and, and food items and things like that can be co-opted by bigger food corporations. And so for, the entrepreneurs that we were working with, some of them, it was like, this is my etu face-offs that I have perfected. And this is like from my culture and I want to share it with people. Um, And how can I do that without kind of having the rug pulled out from underneath me? But the CPG world, especially the, the sort of natural CPG world, which is, you know, very big and popular and growing in this country um, is very much white dominated. um, And that is for a lot of reasons of just access to capital networks, um, you know, who has the knowledge. It it is a very 
specific knowledge of like, you should do these st steps in this order. This is what to look out for as you're working with a co-packer. Um, so we were able to just have um, entrepreneur, we, for the CPG, we specifically said we want to prioritize BIPOC-led um, companies because we felt there was that huge gap. Uh, and so how can we help them access all of that information that they need to really help their businesses grow and thrive? Oh my gosh, that is so incredible. And just to hold space for people being left behind and mm -hmm. just another example in our world of how capitalism being rooted in racism, like plays out. This is one piece of a bigger picture of like, yes, this is a place where that happens too. And to get to be part of an organization and help at that time, like get basically undo gatekeeping, right. Or like help give a key to get in to the area. Like that feels exactly. so important. Um, I would love if you could share a little bit about, it's probably more complicated than I'm thinking. Cause I just have no idea. I was talking with my partner and we were talking about consumer packaged goods actually this week because we found some tortillas that came from his hometown in Mexico in Colorado. And he was so excited. He's from like a smaller town um, originally. And we were like, how does this process start? Like, do people make these things at home and their friends and family are like, this is so good. You should like commercialize this. How do they go from doing things at home to actually like making it to where they can sell their product in store? Yeah, it's a it's a long road um, and not as straightforward as you might think, like with places for misstep that you might not expect. So um, there are cottage food laws um, and in the U.S. It, it varies from state to state. And, and those sort of laws say, OK, you can make a certain amount of this CPG product at home and then sell it to the public. But these are the conditions that you have to meet, whether that's taking a course or like a food safety course. Um, a lot of times there's certain things where you can't do that, like meats or dairy, you know, for food safety reasons. And again, it's kind of complicated because it varies from state to state. Um, so from there, if you're growing, you can then move into a commercial kitchen space. And that is a space where they do have sort of health and safety inspections. And so the entire space is certified. Um, again, there are restrictions around like meat and, and so it is complicated and you have to have insurance in case someone eats something, gets sick and sues you. Um, and so at that point, like once you've kind of reached that um, level and you want to get bigger, a lot of people use a co-packer. So co-packer is like a larger food manufacturing facility. And then you give them your formulation, like your ingredients, and they they are actually the ones to, to make it and um, label it and then produce it. So you don't have to like build a factory from scratch because that's incredibly expensive. Um, but at that point, like it can get a little tricky. I've heard of um, people who's who have had their formulation stolen if they don't like get the right like uh, for like contract signed and also um, just backing out at the last minute if you've kind of, it's so it's it's hard it's you have to have a lot of runway like a lot of funding 
to be able to weather these missteps. And a lot of times it's hard because you get a big contract and you have to produce the items before you actually get paid. And how do you make up for that? So, so just systemically, um, the gaps in disparities in access to capital is another barrier for um, BIPOC entrepreneurs who are looking to get into this space. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of people feel like, okay, and then I'll get like a contract with Whole Foods and that will be, that will be that, like it'll, it'll all work out. But there can be a lot of, first, it's hard to get into a grocery store because you really have to show that, okay, I'm going to sort of beat out all of these other products that I'm competing with. And even if, if you think, oh, well, no one else has the sauce that's like this sauce, you know, um, it's not just you're not only competing against the exact same product, you're competing about all with all the other sauces that people might buy of any type. Um, so it's difficult to get that space. And then once you were there, you really have to make sure that you're selling. Otherwise, it's not worth it for the stores. And then if you do are doing well and they want to increase orders, it can be tricky because if you can't fulfill that, then that you know, if you can't wrap up, ramp up production quickly enough, then that can be another reason for them to say, I don't, I don't want to carry this product. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's, there's so many like dynamic pieces that it seems like you have to be ready for a shift mm -hmm. of either like, like some kind of pivot of, okay, like this, this is a hit at this store and they want more. Like how, how do we shift our business now to go more commercial or like to get bigger? How do we scale it? Or, oh, we're hitting this barrier. It's not selling. Oh, it's next to this other sauce that people seem to really like. And they're not really biting mine because they don't know exactly what it is or how to use it. And then how do we shift our marketing efforts to like help people understand there's so many pieces that we don't see when we go to the store and we're like, oh, here's a new, like, cookie to try. Cool. Um, yeah, completely. It, it's really so fascinating. Um, I'm wondering for you, do you know how it works as far as cost of production versus profit that people hope to make off of it? I think I've heard in the past, like 30% profit is what people kind of mark up to, in order to kind of sustain things and keep things running. I might be pulling that out of my ass, but just thought I'd throw out what I think I know. I would love to hear your perspective. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a specific number. That was something that we we would... So I worked with um, the entrepreneurs alongside like a CPG expert. So they were often the ones that got into the nitty gritty of those numbers. So I can't recall. Totally. That's super fair. It's so interesting to think about... Um, you know. We have a lot of listeners who are in the private practice space, the group practice space, education space, and a lot of, especially the one-on-one -on -one work, it's a, a bit more of a simple business model because it's like, you're paying for my time and my expertise, right? And so the exchange is you get me and I get paid right in that moment. So there's not really the need to raise capital or get funding or build up in different ways before you can scale. And I'm going to put an asterisk there because going from a solo clinician to a group, there is a little bit of that, but not to the extent of, I have to create this product and hope to God that I can sell this thing and that there's a need in the way that I think there is. And so I have such an appreciation for this different business style. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about that is because I know a lot of people 
are interested in different streams of revenue and like having different offerings. I know for me, I'd love to have a coffee shop one day and, and wing that, but just thinking about getting a nice espresso machine, that's going to be like $10,000 and like, you know, find the right places to source coffee and doing all of that up front before having a buy-in is such a, such a big risk. And so I really, um, applaud these entrepreneurs that are, that are taking risk. And I totally see the the barriers they could face too. I'm wondering how people tend to go about getting funding. And maybe that's part of the propeller, the way that they help is maybe, I don't know if they offer funding for people or how that kind of worked, what you saw, how did people rally and like get things up and going? Yeah. So um, some people were like applying for grants and things like that, especially for um, BIPOC owned businesses, there are some opportunities um, from foundations and other places that want to support. So we had some of our uh, alumni, you know, get funding through James Beard Foundation. Um, And then uh, a lot of times, and this is another sort of disparity is for a lot of small businesses, it's just friends and family, you know, does the first round of funding. And that is tricky because if you come from um, a background of, you know, a community that traditionally doesn't have a huge amount of wealth, you know, then where are those friends and family going to get their money from? Mm. Um, and so that that's just another way that kind of just that it becomes more of a white dominated space. Um, And then we had, uh, we worked with other entrepreneurial support organizations in the city that they had a Kiva loan program. And um, so they could, uh, the entrepreneurs could raise money in that way. So that was successful for some people in small amounts, but to really go for the larger, bigger, um, you know, like venture capital amounts that, that was kind of the, goal for some entrepreneurs, but that is also like a long road. And then there's the question of, you know, are you just trying to build up your business really quickly so that you can sell it? Because I think for a lot of people in the CPG space, that that is the goal. Um, But for some of our entrepreneurs, they didn't want to do that. Like they had a sort of a longer term, bigger vision of this multifaceted business that, that just belonged to them. Mm, I, love that the differentiation there because i think that's a lot of startup culture in general right like consumer packaged goods that it, it is a startup space in a lot of ways and there is a hurry up quickly and build and sell kind of mentality which maybe for some like awesome and then for others it's not as values aligned um especially if maybe someone's building like a family business this was a recipe that came from their great grandmother and there's just an element of wanting the individual control always within them versus like, you know, it's complicated when you sell something and somebody else takes it over and wanting, wanting that to just be part of their life. And they run the business and they make the things and they grow it to the extent they want to. Like, that's also really beautiful values filled path. So it makes sense that there's, there's a mix of of the two. Um, do you have an example of a food product that you love that you've been a part of and you've seen be successful? I have a few, um, I have, a. I mean, I, honestly, like I love all of the products that we've worked with, but ah, I don't want to actually talk about this one that, that was my favorite because 
we are afraid that the big beverage, one of the big beverage corporations is going to sell his idea. Um, So I'll just be kind of, I'll be vague about this one and then maybe I'll choose one that I could be more specific about. So I worked with one entrepreneur who just had like a really brilliant idea. He is a food scientist and was got really interested in um, probiotics and so came up with this very innovative probiotic drink that he is working on. And um, so he's an example of an entrepreneur that wasn't interested in selling his business. Um, And he actually sort of stumbled onto its potential while working at a farmer's market in LA. (laughs) He's originally from Baton Rouge, but he was living in California for a while, was working at a farmer's market, was selling kefir water, I think. Is that a thing? Um, and perhaps, and, <laughs> and on the side had been making this own drink. And so he was sipping that and the customer, a customer came up and was like, what are you drinking? And he get, he gave her a taste and she said, you should be selling that instead. So that was sort of his inspiration for, for perfecting this recipe. Um, and there is a very real threat of someone coming along and scooping up this idea before he has the chance to grow his business enough to be like the originator of this product. Um, so he was, he was just like such a cool person to work with because he was so, I mean, I guess I can talk a little bit about like sort of the characteristics that I experienced of entrepreneurs and how they viewed their businesses. And, and what I loved about working with him was that he, he was open to hearing ideas that challenge what he thought he should be doing to move forward. Um, and, and was open to actually trying it and, Mm. and was okay with seeing whether or not that direction that didn't feel right to him at first actually was perhaps the right direction to try. Um, And he just had such a strong sense of who he wanted his product to be for um, and who he wanted to reach. Um, So it just felt like a very cohesive experience. And um, I'm just his biggest like cheerleader and fan, even though I could not tell you the name of the product right now because I don't want it (laughs) to be stolen. (laughs) As totally makes sense. And we're all about protecting intellectual property and rooting for him. And whenever he makes it big and he's like, okay, you can share, you can email us and we'll update the show notes and like tell the people. So that's awesome. I love the story. It's just so um, wholesome of someone coming up to you at a farmer's market and being like, what are you drinking? And just like being inspired in that moment, like that one conversation just changed this person's whole life. And mm-hmm. I, it's, it's like a meet cute for your entrepreneur journey. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just, I think that's so charming. And I hope that's part of his story, you know, on the back of drinks when it's like, this is how this drink came to be. Um, totally. So we'll definitely want to be updated about that and tell us about the other one too. Yeah. And then the other one, um, so this business, this was just a cool journey to see how being part of our accelerator could inspire um, a white business owner to really integrate racial equity into their business. Um, and this I, this person I can talk about publicly because his business is open. It's called Piety and Desire Chocolate. So he is from the New Orleans area, Christopher, um, and he just makes really uh, interesting 
chocolates that are um, actually kind of what he calls it like better than fair trade, I think is, is how he puts it, but working directly with um, cocoa, cacao growers to source the beans. And as you probably know, the chocolate industry is full of really horrible labor practices um, and, and growers aren't paid fairly for the work that they do and the product that they produce. Um, so he's really intentional about that side of things and making sure that people are compensated fairly all along the supply chain. Um, but also, you know, we worked together pre 2020. And so when, um, after the murder of George Floyd and when people were really speaking out about things like that, he put up signs in his business, like basically on the door of his business, telling people like black lives matter. And if you don't agree with that, you can turn around and leave. And, um, in the South, like I think in Denver, we see that around town and that's not as big a deal, but, um, especially in this sort of like high-end luxury chocolate world that is perhaps a whiter, wealthier population for him to take that kind of stance and really, put it on a social media and just make it known like this is a business that believes that black lives matter. And, and I don't want you as a customer, if you don't agree with that, it was, um, Mm. it was just cool to see, see that evolution. I think he probably always had felt those things inside because you kind of, we talk about that during the accelerator program, but to be able to speak about that publicly and make that part of your business uh, was really cool to see. Yeah. And I'm imagining too, you know, a lot of, um, folks, I'm not sure where he was sourcing like ingredients for his chocolate and things. Um, but it tends to be a lot of labor workers are people of color. And, um, again, it goes back to racial inequities related to money and working conditions. And so for your day to day to see that and him probably diving into that space, the deeper the hopes is the deeper you go into that, just the the more you know you the less you know and feel like you need to do something and do what you can and your part to like bring awareness and take big political stances because it's the shit matters. And when you see it in that way, it just changes so much. And so to get to see someone evolve like that is huge and yeah. important. And we should all be in an evolution. Mm-hmm. Which I think this is a, a beautiful and messy segue into your work with your newsletter because you're really talking about a lot of these issues. Can you tell us about the anti-racist dietitian and all the things content-wise? And then I want to ask you about using the platform that you use. Sure. So, you know, I, so I started anti-racist RD, the Instagram account, um, in 2020, when I saw the dietitians were starting to talk about racism and anti-blackness and I was super excited, um, but pretty quickly became frustrated with just trying to write it on like a million Instagram slides. (laughs) Like these (laughs) issues are very complicated and cannot really be distilled down to seven slides. So stepped away. And um, when I was thinking about getting back into writing, that was always something that I wanted to get back to, not just because 
it felt really um, important to be sharing these things, but also it just, it just felt like a, a place where I could put together all of these different strands of my um, career and really share them with the world in a unique way. So, um, so I purposely tried to frame it when I, because I didn't exactly know what I was going to be writing about when I started, when I launched the newsletter, but I purposely framed it in a way where I could write about all sorts of different things that touched generally on food system, nutrition, and uh, dietetics as uh, with centering racial equity. Um, So, so I write about, you know, issues in agriculture and the local food movement. Um, I write about kidney disease and climate change. Um, I, my most recent essay was around um, intuitive eating and applying that in the setting of food insecurity um, and sort of just the nuanced, like it doesn't have to be black and white, how we see the different um, eating philosophies and and what works for different populations. Um, so yeah, it's been a great place to meet people. Um, a lot of my readers are dietitians, but definitely not all of them. So just all kinds of different perspectives coming together. Um, and I have, have just learned a lot from working with weight-inclusive dietitians and just thinking about how fat phobia folds into all of these um, issues around race, nutrition, and how we eat. What I love about your Substack is you are such a engaging storyteller as well. And I think it's really hard to talk about these things from a stance of, let me give you this hard information that's also very in-depth and nuanced. And also let me do it in a way that's going to keep you engaged and not like eyes glazing over, panicking, like wondering what you can do, even though there's always an element of that and there should be. Like we do not need comfort. We need to be uncomfortable. But every time I see your name pop into my inbox, I'm like, yes, it's newsletter day and I'm so excited to read it. Or sometimes I'll I'll save it to like savor later as my reward for doing my work. Like your capabilities to storytell around these really big topics is so unique and awesome too. I don't even know how to describe it. I just need people to go and subscribe to you. Um, And you can do that through Substack. We'll give a plug at the end, but tell us a little bit about what it's been like launching a newsletter and using Substack and this form of entrepreneurship as activism. Um, Tell us about your, the process and getting set up and what you like about it and yeah, I've I've been interested in Substack since I learned about the platform because I thought it was so um just a cool way to kind of take that Patreon model of having people directly support those whose work they like um and apply that to writing. Um you know, I was working for the kitchen for so long doing blogging. I had my own personal food blog and those avenues. I mean, the kitchen obviously I was paid for that, but um my own personal blog never made money because I didn't want to work with advertisers. And, you know, as you know, running a values-based business, it's really hard to find values-aligned advertisers that aren't doing other problematic things on the side. Um, And so it was exciting to think about, I could write about these sort of spicy issues um, and 
the people that were there to learn more about it would be the ones supporting me. Um, I was really inspired by Burnt Toast and Virginia Soul Smith. Her her Substack, of course, is like one of the originals um, that is doing so well. And and uh, so yeah, it was kind of like a leap into the unknown. But as soon as I started the writing, I was like, oh, this feels like blogging, which I always loved for its freedom. After years of like academic writing, writing for bigger outlets where you do have to keep up kind of a like blander tone because people don't necessarily get to know you. So I appreciate everything you said about my storytelling style. And I feel like a lot of that comes from just building that trust with the readers so they understand a little bit about where I'm coming from um, and, you know, appreciate that I can throw in humor sometimes when writing about something that's more serious. Um, and it's just been amazing to all the people that I've connected with along the way, whether they're just readers who are um, appreciating what I write or sharing their perspective on, on what I'm writing, or some of the people that I've interviewed um, from like authors. I, I talked to Jessica Wilson um, to you know, just dietetic students sharing their perspective. I had one essay that was just a, an interview from, with a Black dietetic student who shared her experience of the racism and discrimination that she faced during her DPD program. Mm. Um, so it's just been great to make connections with people and feel like there are others out there who care about the same things that I care about. Yeah, I'm imagining it feels very validating of like, okay, I'm finding my people. I'm I'm filling a need. There's people, there's not necessarily this specific type of Substack or newsletter that's happening and people are getting value of this. And I have this gift I can share with the world. And like, cause I know for me, what I like about receiving a newsletter directly to my inbox is it's, it's kind of curated to me and my continued learning and desire to do anti-racism work and it's not enough to just do that, but having something small that I know is consistent and then getting to support a small business is like just all values aligned. So I appreciated your perspective on bringing in values too, because advertising in, in particular and getting sponsors, we struggle with that with the podcast too, which is why you'll notice a lot of our podcasts aren't sponsored because we're like, we don't want to be sellouts and we, we want to support and get support from other organizations that we really believe in. And at the same time, we don't want, we want it to be fully aligned with our company. And that's just values-based. Like we're not here to just make money. Like this work is meaningful and we care about it. And so I feel like in a way this is grassroots, right? Of like depending on community and building connection and just the people who are supporting you are also like people aligned with you. And that's such a beautiful space to be in. Yeah. And, and the way that I've sort of you know, that when you start, like Substack gives you a lot of resources for like, here's how to grow your paid base. Like here's sort of how many times you should post. Here's what you should offer paid subscribers. And what I am more and more interested in is n not just more of me, because that's often what they say you should give is like more newsletters, more access to you. But I feel like it's more access to the community. So we have a community book club where I host a Zoom and we all read a book and then have a discussion about it. And that was kind of a scary thing to do at first because I haven't seen 
other Substacks that necessarily do any kind of live virtual events. Um, but it was amazing. It was just such a great space where everyone was really on the same page, maybe not sharing all the same opinions, but coming to the space with the same intention of, we read this book together, let's use this time together to really deepen our understanding of what we read. Mm. Um, And then I want to, I just was um, approved to offer CEUs. So I want to offer paid subscribers more opportunities to get CEUs that are really um, talking about anti-racism and exploring these issues because it's it's pretty hard to find those opportunities just out in the wild. Oh, it totally is. And congrats. That's fucking awesome. And I feel what a gift to the dietetics field for them to get to read your work and get CEUs for it. And I'm not sure what the events and things will look like, but I'm excited to to see how that all plays out. So before I let you go, Angelie, we like to ask rapid fire questions to our guests. You don't know any of these questions. They're only seven and it's just a quick, fun little question. So are you ready? I am ready. Awesome. If your business was an animal, what would it be? An otter. Um, Because they're quick, moving, slippery, (laughs) and cute. (laughs) What's your favorite part of being a multi-passionate entrepreneur? I put multi-passionate in there because it's clear, like your hands are in a lot of cookie jars, as Morgan would say. And we love that. We're in the same boat. Like, what's your favorite part? Just every day being different. I get really bored if it's just the same thing every day. So I love to stay stimulated and passionate about what I'm doing. What's your morning routine to get ready for the day? Uh, I have two young kids. So first I have to get them out of the house. And then (laughs) I (laughs) usually sit down and kind of write out what I need to get done that day and plot out my time um, throughout the day or kind of schedule in those things into my day to figure it out. And then I get ready and get started. Love it. We love a to-do list. If you had $10,000 today to spend on your business, how would you spend it? I think I would really try to expand on this um, CEU for dietitians and be set up to offer webinars and things like that. What's the hardest decision you've had to make in your business? Um, So shortly after launching the newsletter, um, my husband found out, well, actually, I found out that we were going to be losing our insurance through his union. Um, and so uh, the question was like, do I keep moving forward or do I take a step back and just try to get a job so that we can have employer provided insurance? Luckily Mm. we had, um, a few months to, before it was going to end. Um, but that was definitely a hard decision. And I, I really, I'm thankful that he was so supportive of me and was like, no, you're so excited about doing this new thing and and bringing creativity into your life. So he wanted me to keep going. Oh gosh. That's such a big pain point for our community as well. I think we have a podcast episode on like what to do about health insurance when you're an entrepreneur. Um, so that is a very real struggle. And that's why a lot of people stay at their jobs, right? Because mm-hmm. of that piece. And it totally makes sense. Anyway, I'm on a tangent now circling back. <laughs> What's your least favorite task that you've happily outsourced? I have not outsourced anything yet. I'm a one woman (laughs) business over here. (laughs) Okay. What is the task you're going to get rid of? What is it? Uh, It would probably be 
just somehow outsourcing some of my emails. I just, emails are just so hard. They're so, it just always feels like I'm buried under a mountain of emails. Yeah, I've got 188 to get through later. So I'm totally with you. (laughs) And lastly, what's the best thing you've eaten this week? Oh, I made this. Uh, I actually shared this in the, the newsletter today, so you can check it out. But I <laughs> made this really delicious sheet pan recipe from the New York Times um, called uh, coconut tomato fish bake or something like that. But basically, um, you make this turmeric, uh, coconut, milk, ginger, lime juice marinade, and then you marinate fish, put it on a sheet pan with... Um, just a bunch of uh, cherry tomatoes. And then you bake that and we ate it over rice. And it was super, super delicious and really easy. Oh, I love delicious, easy and flavorful. And it's crazy how simple things can make something taste so delicious. So mm-hmm. we'll definitely have to check that out. I know I got your newsletter as one of my emails to read. So <laughs> as we wrap up, can you let the listeners know where to find you online and the best way to connect with you? We definitely will be linking your Substack newsletter in the show notes so people can find you there, but any upcoming yeah. offerings as well. Yeah. So we have, um, uh, and our next book club is coming up. We're going to be reading the book Tastes Like War, which is a memoir by Grace M. Cho. She is uh, Korean American. And uh, and then and within the next few weeks, I'll be launching the first CEU offering. So I'm starting small with a journal club. Um, and I want to discuss the journal article that talks about um, uh, the Mediterranean diet through the critical race theory lens. So it's super interesting stuff that I think is really relevant for all dietitians. Um, but yeah, I would love it if people came and subscribed at angelyruth.substack.com. And then I'm also on Instagram at antiracistrd. Awesome. Angelie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thanks for listening to the Weight Inclusive Innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to our podcast to add us to your queue every week. Please leave us a rating and review, share with a business bestie to help us reach more weight-inclusive business owners who could use support in pep talks. See you next week.